Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3. We'll be looking at the last five verses of that chapter. And we want everybody to see those verses as we look at them. So these guys have some Bibles. If you need one, get their attention and they'll get a Bible to you. As we look at Genesis chapter 3. I think I said this last time we had our missions coin offering that starts our service. Uh, And that is, it means you all have to reset your internal clock a bit. Because if you look at what time it is right now, the missions coin offering sets us back a bit. I normally get up to preach a little bit earlier. And here's the deal. I get 45 minutes. So 1045 would work if I get up at 10. Right now it's about 1013. You can do the math on that. That would be 1058 if I do 45 minutes. If by some miracle I get done before that, then I will, ba- I will bank that for next week. And I will use it, I will use it then. In March of this year, I listened to a segment of something called the Moth Radio Hour on the local public radio station. The segment that I heard was a talk from an author, an Australian named Warren MacDonald, and he had written a book called A Test of Will. And his presentation on Moth was a description of the story that inspired that book. Now, here's my best transcription of what he said. I've spent my entire adult life searching, searching for meaning, wondering why we're alive. I say my entire adult life because it's not always been the case. In my high school days, I had no interest in the deeper questions and would just party and have fun most of the time. But all of that changed at age 18 when I went on a four-day outward-bound style hike. For the first time in my life, I felt a connection, and I felt overcome by this connection, and for one of the first times in my life, I felt at home. For the next decade, I drifted in and out of chasing that connection down and periods of being lost and switching back to my old ways. April of 1997 found me once again lost. Whenever I've had that feeling, I would reach for my backpack and my hiking boots So I did so again. I had heard about this amazing wilderness island across from the Great Barrier Reef and the northeast of Australia, for which you had to catch a ferry boat across. It takes a couple of hours to get there in a ferry boat that can hold at most 12 people. I got there, I hiked the first day, and in the evening came to a beach and I met a Dutchman whose plan was to climb the highest mountain peak on the island, Mount Bowen. I was in immediately. The next day, we started making our way up Mount Bowen. Now, there is no trail, so you follow a creek bed, and you just bushwhack, and you boulder hop, and this is what we did all day. We found a place to set up camp for the night, cook dinner, and Geert, the Dutchman, got into a sleeping bag, and I was about to climb into mine, when I remembered that it's probably good for me to use the facilities. And then I remembered there are no facilities. We're by the creek, which is literally just a trickle at this point. But it's not a good idea to make the creek that is your water supply your temporary facility, especially when you'll be coming down the same way in a couple days. But on the other side of the creek was a 12 to 14 foot steep rock wall that I could climb and I could make facility on the other side. I began to scale the wall, and as luck would have it, I found a crack that I could fit my hand into and pull up. 
I did, and just as I began to pull myself up, a refrigerator-sized piece of rock broke loose and absolutely slammed me back down. I was in indescribable pain, and I immediately screamed out, and gear came right away to help me. This incredible weight was grinding, grinding into my legs as it sat atop them. We tried everything we could, but we could not budge the boulder. Just when I thought it couldn't get any worse, I felt a drop of rain. Now I'm in a creek bed. Within minutes, those drops became a torrential downpour. Within 45 minutes, I had water around my hips. Within an hour and a half, a raging, flooding creek was around my waist. Things were starting to get desperate. Gear began building a dam, and I began thinking about the aluminum tubes that were part of my backpack that I may need to use as a snorkel when this water gets above my head. But just as suddenly as it started, the rain stopped. But my legs were still stuck under a one-ton piece of rock. My only hope was for Gear to go for help in the morning. When he set out that next morning, I never felt so lonely, and I knew that I'd be alone for at least the next 24 hours. I did the only thing I could do, and that is to settle in and wait and think. I thought about all the people I will probably never see again. I got angry, really angry. Why could I not be happy just staying at home? Why do I always need to travel and chase and search looking for something? And then I remembered the desire for connection that I've always had and that searching for meaning. And I thought to myself, is this connected enough for you? <laughs> is this meaningful enough for you? I drifted off and later awakened, was later awakened by the sound of a helicopter. It took two and a half hours to lift the boulder off with the rope and the helicopter's assistance. When I got to the hospital, both legs were amputated at mid-thigh. And so I began my new life. I had to become accustomed to a wheelchair and later to prosthetic legs. But I still had those burning questions in the back of my mind about meaning and whether I'll ever experience the connection. And you know, I learned that you can put mountain bike wheels on a wheelchair. And ten months after the accident... I climbed a mountain in Tanzania with my artificial legs. Sitting on top of that mountain, I was completely overwhelmed with emotion. It all came flooding back to me, the accident, the rescue, all that I've lost. And this is what he says last. But the thing that most overwhelmed me as I sat atop that mountain was the sense of being connected and that I had found my way home. And that's how he ended his talk. And when I heard that, I filed it for this sermon. Because I would suggest to you that the reason people search for connection is because they first have a sense of being disconnected. And that implies a previous connection that's been severed. The reason that people search for home is because they have a sense that they were made for a home other than this. And the reason that so many people have this sense, though certainly most do not pursue it as Warren MacDonald did, the reason that people have the sense of the loss of connection and of home is because of what the Bible describes in very succinct language in just three verses that have had effects on every one of us. Genesis 3 and verse 22. 
The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's ask God to help us as we look at his word. Father, thank you for this great privilege of being here, of being together, but most important, for being in your presence in a special way on this Lord's Day. Thank you for the privilege of having and opening your word and for the privilege that you afford to those who know you of having your spirit whereby your word resonates within us and we desire to know it and to obey it. Help us to do that very thing, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, the passage that we just read together is the aftermath of our sin and of our sin's consequences. If you've been with us for this series, then you know that two weeks ago I explained that the first sin committed by the first human pair, Adam and Eve, was in effect committed by each of us. And that's because Adam was our perfect representative. As I've said the last two weeks, Adam did what we would have done. And so we suffer the consequences along with Adam and Eve. Those judgments that God issued for our disobedience are recorded in verses 14 through 19. We saw those last week. Now, if you were not here, then you can listen to that message as all of our messages at our website, cbctrenton.com. And now having told us how our lives are going to go, God having told us that our lives are going to have these consequences of work and childbearing being accompanied by pain and our relationships being strained and often a battle. And most important, that we've been cut off from relationship with our Creator who said to that first man and the woman, and as I say in effect to us, that in the day you eat of this tree that I've told you not to eat, in that day you will die. And as I pointed out last week, they did die spiritually. Death means separation. And they were separated from God. And now every person comes into the world at moment one, separated from God. And this world into which we are brought is no longer the garden paradise that we first enjoyed. But the fallen world that we've experienced with disease and brokenness and death. Separation meant that God would separate them from the place that he had put the first man and woman in. Chapter 2 and verse 15 tells us that he placed the man in this garden specifically. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit deliberate in the passage that we just read. The man has now become like one of us, verse 22 says. And that's a deliberation like we find in chapter 1 and verse 26. Let us make man in our image. The man has sinned and he's taken to himself to make his own rules about what is right and wrong. That's a prerogative that belongs to God alone. But in his grace, God does not want the man to be confirmed in this unholy state forever. And so he restricts access to the tree of life, the tree of life that's spoken of in chapter 2. And verse 9, God says there, there are two special trees in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and also the tree of life. And now God says, you're not to have access to this tree of life. 
Because if a man ate of that tree, he would live forever, according to verse 22. And living forever now would mean condemnation to the current state of affairs. It implies then that God offers a way for change to be made to a relationship with him. And we're going to see how that happens in just a bit. That passage in verse 24 tells us that God drove the man out of the garden. And the word that's translated drove from Hebrew into English is the same word that's translated in verse 22, lest the man reach out and receive of the tree of life. God is saying the man can't be allowed to reach out for the tree of life, so I'm going to reach out and move him out of the garden and ensure that he has no access to it. And verse 24 says the cherubim are placed to guard the entrance to the garden. They're angelic beings. And then there's this flaming sword. And that flaming sword is written of in such a way that it's not held by the angels, but it flashes back and forth independently like lightning. And there's this one entrance to the garden. It's on the east. And chapter 2 and verse 10 says that there's a river that flows from the garden and then it separates into four other rivers. And all of that has caused some commentators to suggest that Eden was atop a mountain. And that would explain why there's just this one entrance. The other areas may have been impassable to, to get there and would explain one river then flowing into four others. Now, because Eden's location is lost after the great flood of Noah, we can't know that for sure, but it's certainly a possibility. So we, the people that were made for God and for fellowship with him and for worship of him, are now separated from him. And so we search for connectedness and home. But thanks be to God, he actually takes the initiative and God seeks us out. Friends, God has not left us orphaned. He has provided the remedy for our alienation and for our disconnect from him. Now, how is that connection remade? And that's what I want us to look at in our remaining time with the outline that you have inserted in your program. If you don't have that out in front of you now, I encourage you to take that out. And in this passage, we are going to see that God allows the reconnection that has been lost and for which people search in their own ways and in varied and a myriad of ways. God makes that reconnection possible, first of all, By instructing us that we must believe God. We must believe God. Now, how do we see that in this passage? Verse 20 of chapter 3. says, Adam named his wife Eve. Here's why. Because she would become the mother of all living. Now, I'm going to show here that Adam and Eve did this. That God instructs that we believe, and that's the first step in establishing a relationship with him, a renewed connectedness to him, an invitation to come back home, is that we believe, and that Adam and Eve did this. And therefore, I'm convinced that Adam and Eve will be in heaven. Now, why do I think that? Well, because I want to show you uh, for just a few minutes that they indeed met this first and foundational requirement that, that you have to believe. And Adam's belief is seen in his naming of Eve, giving her a name which means the mother of all living. 
Now, there's a Greek translation of your Old Testament. Your Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. You know that. We have English in front of us. But it's been translated from Hebrew into, into Greek. And the word that's translated Eve in Greek is zoe, from which we get zoo or zoology. The Bible teaches that all humans are descended from this first human couple, Adam and Eve, and perhaps surprisingly to some, science teaches that as well. There's a certain type of DNA. It's called mitochondrial DNA. It's generally inherited only through the mother's line. Now, geneticists have analyzed mitochondrial DNA from all around the world, and they've come to a startling discovery. Startling if you didn't already believe the Bible. And that is, all people on earth are descended from a single human female. In fact, even evolutionists call this single human female mitochondrial Eve. Now, you might expect that unbelieving scientists would then fall on their knees and repent. But friends, the problem has never been a lack of evidence, but a lack of will to believe the evidence. And so they hypothesized that there were other women at the same time as mitochondrial Eve, even though only her line survived. You know, for me, unbelief is just so hard to believe. And in addition, new evidence about the mutation rate of mitochondrial DNA indicates mitochondrial Eve would have lived, now get this, 6,000 to 6,500 years ago. Now go figure. So we can just call mitochondrial Eve the Eve of the Bible from whom all living humans have come. But wait, there's more. Evidence from the Y chromosome is consistent with all people being descended from a single man as well. And in Adam naming his wife Eve, the mother of all living, he was expressing belief in and obedience to God's command in chapter 1 and verse 28. That you're to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And this is in effect a prediction now. We're the first couple. We're going to obey what God has said. We believe God now. Having learned our, our lesson with the consequences of the fall, and so Adam's expressing belief and obedience to God's command in 128, but also God's statement in chapter 3, just a few verses up, and verse 15, where God says, I'm going to place enmity between your seed, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. And then that seed is personified as one who is going to crush the head of the serpent. God is saying that the remedy for sin is going to come from a human being through the seed of the woman. And Adam apparently believes this and so names his wife Eve the mother of all living. But not only did Adam apparently believe, but so did Eve. When Adam and Eve's first child, Cain, was born in just the next chapter, in chapter 4 and verse 1, the way that verse is worded, it appears that Eve believed that Cain, their first child, was the promised seed of chapter 3 and verse 15. She says, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And a man is literally the man. With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth the man. And God has said, There's going to be one who's going to come through your seed who's going to crush the head of the serpent. She wrongly, we all know, thought that this was the promised one. Now friends, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without belief, you've heard me say many times over the years that when you see the word faith, if it helps you as it does me, you can, sub you can substitute that with the word belief. 
You have the same word family in Greek for the word faith and for belief or believing. And so without believing, without belief, it's impossible to please God. So it follows that believing is the first step in having a relationship with God. Now to say that Adam and Eve are going to be in heaven then, as as I believe they are. I believe Adam and Eve are going to be in heaven. And you've heard me joke about the first person I want to talk to and have a word with when we get to heaven is Adam and say, dude, what were you thinking in the garden? But of course, that only works if he's actually going to be there. But how can I say Adam and Eve or anyone else in the first part of your Bible before God came to earth as man, before Jesus came to earth? How can I say that any of them were saved, made fit for heaven? When the Bible says things like this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Or Jesus said when he walked the earth, some 4,000 years after Adam, 2,000 years ago now, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you have to believe in Christ to go to heaven, but how could they believe in him if he hasn't come yet? Well, the answer is, Well, I'll tell you a little bit later. Really, I will. So to have a renewed relationship with God, to recover what was lost in Eden, we must first believe God. Secondly, we must receive God's provision. Receive God's provision. And God has provided a number of things. The first is this. God provides covering for sin. God provides covering for sin. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, why do you think God did this? Remember, going back to verse 7 of chapter 3, they're already clothed. The Bible tells us that they made for themselves clothing of of fig leaves. So if you just read this and then God makes them clothing now of these skins of an animal, you could think God just doesn't like the look. You know, Adam, I just don't think those fig leaves are you. Now imagine yourself just sashaying into the wilderness with these animal skins. It's not just a fashion statement. It's actually much more important than that. God is providing a covering for their skin, for their sin, and a particular type of covering for their sin. Now, why? I say in your outline, it's because our sin must be covered. Our sin must be covered. That is, God is teaching at the outset of human history and throughout then the Bible, sin must be dealt with. It must be dealt with before God, and it must be dealt with for the well-being of the sinner. Before God and for the well-being of the sinner. Now, for sin to be dealt with before God, God's anger at sin must be appeased, the Bible teaches. You see that in a few passages where older translations rightly give us a word called propitiation. And it means to satisfy the anger of another, to satisfy the anger of God in this case, towards sin. And some newer translations preserve it, thankfully, as well. Romans 3.25 says this, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. 
In 1 John 2, 2, the Bible says he, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. And so sin has to be covered. Sin has to be dealt with because a, an absolutely holy and righteous God must deal with sin. And so there has to be a way for God to be propitiated, to be appeased in his anger at sin. But it needs to be propitiated to God. Now hear this, but expiated, sorry for the big terms, but expiated from us. That is removed from us. But that only happens. Sin is only removed from us. Subjectively, personally, individually, in our experience. If we actually deal with sin. Sin requires a covering. It requires a covering to, to appease God's anger at it, but, but also... Sin needs to be dealt with for our own well-being so that it's removed from us in our experience. In Psalm 32, we read of the experience of King David. And you know the, the sin of King David in committing adultery with Bathsheba and then endeavoring to cover it up, having a, her husband killed in order to cover it up. Heinous sin committed by David. He had no intention initially of confessing this sin. And so he kept this sin within him until later he was confronted by the prophet Nathan who faced him and said, you are the man who has done these things. And then David confessed. But prior to that, Psalm 32 describes how David felt while he was trying to cover his own sin rather than having it covered by God. And here's what Psalm 32 says. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was sapped. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And he says that about his experience and how he felt, and how it was impacting him that he was attempting to cover for what he had done. But he starts this blessed psalm off this way. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are are covered. Friends, our sin has got to be dealt with. It's got to be covered from God's standpoint, propitiated his anger towards sin, but it also has to be dealt with for us and in us. And we try to deal with sin in entirely inadequate ways. Now, I have a letter that was written by a pastor pastor that I don't know personally. It's published in a book, actually. And he uses different names, of course, in the book. But it's out of a counseling session, this one is, that he was having with a woman. And a woman who had experienced evil at the hands of others and who had done evil herself. And he says, I want you to see the destructive and deadly nature of sin. The hard truth is that we are all sinners who do evil to others. And you are a sinner who has done evil to your husband." We are also all victims of sin that has been done to us. And you're a victim of sins by your dad and by your first boyfriend. The effect of sin, including sins committed against us, is that we feel guilty and or dirty. And then he goes on to talk about how sin defiles. It defiles places in our minds and certain things in our minds. And people are defiled by sin, both objectively and subjectively. He says the predictable result is shame, including the fear of being truly known by others or found out. Our first parents, filled with shame, covered themselves with fig leaves designed to hide from one another. They also hid from God and they ran from intimacy and love to 
toward isolation and death propelled by shame. Additionally, they were filled with fear of being found out and truly known for who they are as defiled sinners. Shame must be redeemed. Whether the shame is due to who we are and what we've done or due to what's been done to us, tragically, this pattern of sin, defilement, and shame and hiding continues. He says through four possible roles that defiled people can assume, and these roles are fig leaves that they and their secrets hide behind. And then he gives these four kinds of fig leaves that this woman could choose from. Now, as I read these, probably none of them will fit any of us in in total. But aspects of each may apply to many of us. So please listen carefully at how you may use one or more of these fig leaves in your life to cover your sin in inadequate ways. The first fig leaf is worn by the good girl or the good guy, of course. The good girl is successful and pleasant and dependable. One man described his wife as a lake with no waves. The good girl rarely, if ever, gets angry. She apologizes when anything goes wrong, whether or not it is her fault, and she seeks to serve others and make them happy at the cost of her own health and well-being. The good girl is essentially dead, devoid of passion and consumed with trying to smile, be good, and do the right thing, hoping to convince everyone that she's fine when she's really broken and devastated. The good girl fears conflict and pursues peace at all costs, even if that sometimes means she's sinned against or feels the need to sin to keep everyone happy with her. The second fig leaf is the tough girl or tough guy. The tough girl has been hurt and she projects to the world her confidence, her anger and her toughness so that nobody has the courage to hurt her again. The tough girl is respected by many, but known and loved by few. What she really desires is intimacy and love, but she's so afraid of being hurt that she develops a hard outer shell that repels everyone. She thus achieves her goal of ensuring she doesn't get hurt, but's also left all alone and desperately lonely. The tough girl often wishes she did not have to be tough, but the inability to trust anyone or feel truly safe in any relationship means that she is on her guard and rarely, if ever, does that guard come down. The tough girl's also frequently the defender of the weak and the hurting. She's keenly aware of those who are hurting, and she appoints herself as their protector and advocate. Sadly, the tough girl is truly not as tough as she appears and often suffers from anger and despair because she does not know how to be anything but a tough girl, and she feels trapped in an identity that not only keeps her from harm, but also keeps her from love. The third fig leaf is the party girl. The party girl's the life of the party, the center of attention, fun to be with, prone to be to self-medicate, though, with drugs or food or alcohol. The party girl has learned to mask her pain with laughter, and she's adept at making fun of even the most horrifying parts of her life. Thus, when she reveals to others who she truly is, it's done in a way that makes everyone laugh and overlook the painful hurt she suffers. The party girl's also prone Not to get visibly angry, but rather to use her anger to cut others with biting irony irony and sarcasm, which is simply violence done through comedy. While the party girl is surrounded with people, the crowds only conceal her loneliness. Few, if any people, truly know who she is and how she's feeling. This is because she so convincingly projects to others that she's happily enjoying her life and is surrounded by people who care, 
But sadly, it's all an illusion. The fourth and final fig leaf is worn by the church lady. The church lady hides behind her religious piety, her ministry work, and her systematic theology. The church lady reads books and learns spiritual truth to help others, but she rarely uses it for her own healing. The church lady loves to pour herself out to help hurting people because it allows her to feel sorrow and grief vicariously while enabling her to avoid her own pain. The church lady is prone to becoming rigidly moralistic and legalistic, judging other people and feeling hurt when people don't seem grateful for all she does. The church lady often turns even a simple conversation into an opportunity to judge someone harshly. She argues over the finer points of theology unnecessarily, or she turns literally everything into a spiritualized discussion complete with lots of Bible verses that are often used as little more than a diversion from the matters of her heart. The church lady is also a phony optimist. While expounding the sovereignty of God, victory in Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit with a legion of proof text Bible verses, the church lady sadly treats Scripture as she would pagan mantras, hoping that if she says them frequently and confidently, somehow her problems will be fixed. And friends, you could fill in fig leaf after fig leaf after fig leaf. Inadequate ways that people try to cover their sin. And all of those people, and when I say those people, all of these people, all of these people, Instead of the inadequate fig leaves with which we try to cover our sin, all of us need to be redressed by God. And that's why I say in your outline, our sin must be covered. But our sin, secondly, must be covered by God. You see, your fig leaf is what you refuse to face and deal with. And only after it's been dealt with, particularly as it relates to God on the vertical level, can you then effectively deal with it on the horizontal level with other people. The great news is that God now has done what's necessary, just as he did with Adam and Eve in the killing of this animal, showing the seriousness of their sin. God initiates this, that life has to be given for life because the wages of sin is death. God has provided the permanent way to be covered for our sin in Jesus. The passage that was read earlier in our service from 2 Corinthians 5 says this, God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that him we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible tells us famously in the first part of your Bible as a prediction hundreds of years before the time that Jesus would actually come, that when he would come, the Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all. So friends, here's the great news. Here's the good news. Here's the gospel. Instead of your fig leaf and all of the variations and myriad ways that you pursue that to cover your sin, instead of that, you can be redressed with the righteousness of Christ. He took our sin upon himself so that we could become the righteousness of God. In his death, he paid the penalty for our sin. And in his absolutely perfect life, he applies the righteousness of Christ, gives us the robe of Christ's righteousness when we come to him. Our sin has to be covered. Our sin has to be covered by God 
And thirdly and lastly, our sin must be covered by sacrifice. God says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, why would God say that? Why does sin require the shedding of blood? Why were the fig leaf coverings not enough? Why did God take the life of an animal to clothe them with these skins, to cover them himself through shedding the blood of an animal? It's because Romans 6 says this, the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is of the highest magnitude. It requires life for life. It requires death. And so we must believe God and we must receive what God provides, covering for sin. But then I say God provides in your outline the taking away of sin, the taking away of sin. I alluded to chapter 3 and verse 15 earlier. If you'll take a look at that. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is, you will do mortal combat with this one who is going to come through the seed of the woman. But the mortal blow is going to be given to you, to the head of the serpent. You will strike only his heel. You will manage to have him crucified, but in that crucifixion will be his greatest triumph. He will crush your head, the one who will come. This is sometimes called, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the proto-evangelium. That is, the first gospel. In chapter 3 and verse 15, God gives us the first hint that with sin having now entered his world, God is going to undertake to do something about it, and he's going to do something about it through the person of one who will come through the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. The answer to the problem of sin will come through the offspring of the woman, through a human who will defeat the serpent. And we read about that defeat of the serpent in the second part of your Bible, in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2 says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. And it goes on to say, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. But then it goes on to say, And having disarmed the powers and authorities. And who are those powers and authorities? Satan and his minions. And Jesus has disarmed them. And he, having disarmed them, made a public spectacle of them. Triumphing over them by the cross. That word that says made a public spectacle of them. That was used in New Testament times of a vanquished army that would be paraded before the people in the city of a victorious nation, showing that they have been thoroughly and completely defeated. And that's what Jesus has done in the cross, made a public display of Satan. What Satan thought was his finest hour was actually the crushing of the head of the serpent. Jesus on the cross took away the penalty for our sin. But the Bible says that he takes away sin itself, too. 
Hebrews chapter 10 says this. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. God in Genesis 3 killed an animal. We don't know what kind of animal. But whatever that animal was, the sacrifice of that animal cannot ultimately take away sin. It's impossible for that to happen. And all of the blood spilled in the first part of your Bible over centuries could not ultimately take away sin. Hebrews 10 says it's impossible for that. And it goes on to say, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Notice this once for all. Not week after week and day after day and year after year. But now the ultimate sacrifice for sin has come in Jesus. And who is this Jesus? You all remember the scene when Jesus Christ came and John the Baptist saw him from afar. And here's what John chapter 1 and verse 29 says. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God. There have been lambs slaughtered for centuries that could never take away sins. But now look, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How do you get reconnected with God? How do you come home again? You do it through the one who has died to reestablish your relationship with your Creator. None other than God, the Son, Jesus Christ, who alone can take away sin. Now, what about those people who lived before the time of Jesus? Remember that? They did believe in Christ, but they didn't know who Christ was. I say they believed in Christ by believing in what pointed to Christ. The entire sacrificial system pointed to the ultimate sacrifice who would come later. And so there are not, and there never has been, two ways of salvation in the Bible, never. In the words of one scholar, the basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. The requirement for salvation in every age is faith. The object of faith in every age is God. The content of that faith, the content of what we are to believe changes at various times. And I would add, along with Professor John Feinberg, that the expression of faith changes at various times. So putting it all together, salvation comes only on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Those living before it happened believed in that which it ultimately pointed to. For example, the sacrifices of animals. People have always been required to believe, but they were to what they were to believe differed. And how they showed what they believed differed as well. Here's practically what that means for you. If you believe that God has initiated a covering through, for your sin through the Lord Jesus Christ who takes away sin. Here's what that means. You no longer have to cover your sin with the fig leaves that you've constructed because Jesus has covered your sin fully and finally. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, Mere Christianity. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You were made for another world. You were made for Eden. But we've been disconnected. 
and everybody searches for that connectedness and for home. You find that connectedness and you're invited home only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Your take-home truth is this. Our sin requires God's solution. Let's bow together. Father, thank you again for this great privilege of seeing the good news, the gospel, expressed in, even in these early pages of your word. And then throughout Holy Scripture, Lord, you explain more fully your plan and how it developed and came to fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be people then who repair to the blood of Jesus regularly. That if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us to be people who are keenly aware of the poor substitutes that we make, the fig leaves that we sow together in order to cover our sin. As a result, may we enjoy the full covering that the Lord Jesus gives us. May we be people who are secure in the identity that we have in Jesus. And in that security, may we proclaim his name and his message to others. It is in his name we pray. Amen.